Prerequisites, a podcast featuring conversations with scholars working in the Michigan State University Department of English. I am your host, Dr. Zach Cruzy, and this episode I am joined by Associate Professor Zarina Salami. Uh, when I first came to MSU, Zarina was one of the very first people that I was able to work with uh, relatively closely, and uh, I immediately took to her teaching style and the way that she interacted uh, with with graduate students and with colleagues, and uh, she's just a heck of a heck of a person all around. Um, Dr. Islami's research and teaching focus on 19th century British literature and culture, and she has special interests in the ideas of empire, history and theory of the novel, feminism, psychoanalysis, and disability studies. She's the author of the 2012 book, The Dream Life of Citizens, Late Victorian Novels, and the Fantasy of the State. Uh, that book is uh, a terrific terrific work, and it explores how novels dramatized, the Victorian novels dramatized the feelings and fantasies of liberal culture that was increasingly optimistic as well as anxious and uh, about the state's capacity to sort of step in and help its citizens achieve uh, something that we might refer to as the good life. Her current book project, uh, Sovereign Anxieties, Victorian Afghanistan and the Literature of Empire, continues this line of inquiry uh, and examines the, the affective co uh, content of political forms in, in a transnational context. In the conversation you're about to listen in on, uh, she and I discuss her recent article, Buffer Zones, Notes on Afghanistan, Race and Empire, which appeared in a special issue of Victorian Studies uh, that considers the challenges and promises of an evolving sort of critical landscape in the field. So you'll hear us talk a lot about race and identity and, and teaching and how to sort of make these ideas tangible and, and, and uh, relatable and practical uh, for, for our students. This is such a delightful conversation for me. Uh, and again, I cannot stress enough. Zarina is someone whose work and teaching I truly admire. I hope you enjoy listening in and I'll see you all on the other side. And now I think, you know, and again, what sort of happens is that we think about empire and we stop thinking about race and racialization. And I think, you know, when you're when you're looking at these novels, no matter if it's a Dickens novel or, you know, a Jane Austen novel to go a little bit before the Victorian period, but to still be in the 19th century, um, we have ways of talking about the imperial context, but we haven't quite developed ways to talk about the racialization that those 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 novels are also um, accomplishing or even just thinking about the larger historical context in which the very claim to narrative authority rests upon claims of racial distinction and racial difference. And I think I talk about that in the essay based upon my experience teaching a class called Victorian race, um, where I still kept defaulting to empire and post-colonial terms and like really having to force myself to stick with race, not simply as the quality that belongs to a character, but rather as a kind of condition for knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, when you start thinking about that in terms of these novels it invites you to think much more about the 19th century and in England and its relationship to transatlantic slavery. I think often as scholars, we get seduced by the way the Victorians themselves thought of themselves as so different from, you know, Americans who had slavery because the British abolished the slave trade and then they abolished slavery in their colonies. But of course they were so involved in the transatlantic slave trade and that money 
completely produces an everyday life in the 19th century um, that gets disavowed um, and that we as scholars have perpetuated that disavowal. So it's so exciting to see the work of many scholars, you know, including the ones in the special issue, start to unpack that um, and really kind of want to draw attention again to the violences around racial difference and anti-blackness, as well as, um, again, imperial extractions and, and, and those kinds of violences, too, to produce that sense of everyday life in England. I mean, there's a kind of sense, you know, the 19th century was very self-congratulatory as well, thinking, you know, we haven't had a war in Europe, you know, in hundreds of years. Like, it's been so peaceful here. And there have been scholars who talk about that, Lauren Goodlad, Nathan Hensley, and that kind of claim, right? It's like all the wars are happening in the colonies. <laughs> all the wars are happening, you know, outside of England um, and, and death there. Um, uh, you know, the death is happening there. And it's like producing, again, this kind of everyday life for, you know, English people in the, in the 19th century. But to say that is also, I don't want to, I don't want to just, I don't want to myself deny, deny the kind of social antagonisms that existed within England that had everything to do with capitalism, um, and also ethnic and racial, ethnic and racializations within the kind of, you know, um, the Isles, right? Like the, the Welsh and the Irish in particular and the Romani people. I mean, so the, all of that stuff is also happening internally, um, to England as well. And so I think once you start thinking globally about that stuff, it, it really, um, comes to the fore and you can see the novels really participating, um, in, uh, and the most popular novels often, you know, quite complicit with notions of whiteness. Um, and so kind of drawing attention to that, um, as I think a change, a really good and needed change. Um, and also to talk about the ways we can still, you know, we might still enjoy the novels. I mean, that's something that, you know, I've had conversations with people too. Like, you might, we might really enjoy Jane Eyre and yet it's horribly racist. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do with that? Right. And you can think about like, how is it interpolating you? You know, what project is it involved in? You know, those are things that, you know, these are really rich and they're not simple. They're not simple conversations to have with easy conclusions. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because that, that brings me to, to two things. One is more anecdotal uh, and just uh, and just sort of uh, something that uh, you had sparked. But one of the ways I was thinking about that and in terms of like the, these novels, I mean, they are thinking globally in, and they are thinking thinking globally and racially, right? So one of the, one of the first Victorian novels that I really uh, was drawn to, right, was The Moonstone. And that is a deeply, deeply racialized novel. But as it was presented to me, um, and this is not the fault of, I don't necessarily fault my instructor, but as it was presented to me, it was, you know, thinking about invasion and empire. And we didn't talk a lot about the, the the very sort of pronounced racialized aspects yeah. of of that novel we did when we got to Jane Eyre, um, yeah. but yeah. but you know I mean he was following a pattern that you know the sort of pre existing pattern where empire is the is the thrust of the conversation. Um, the but, references to the skin color, references to their you know their essence, their biological. I mean that that I, I think that 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 is. Yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and there's so much one could do with race in that novel, right? And, and thinking about it. And... Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess that that leads me to the second part of this, which is another thing you just you just mentioned, but I think is also really difficult to get across, uh, is you know how we sort of are able how we're able to sort of complicate these things while acknowledging that there is a pleasure in, in, in reading them and appreciating them as works of literature as works of art. And uh, I think that that is 
one of the things for me as, as a teacher in the classroom, I think is so hard to um, translate for students sometimes because we often get in a critical mode where we want to point out all of these deeply problematic things because we want them to be more empathetic and more engaged and more observant. But uh, very often I, I find myself trying to sort of walk this tightrope of like letting them know like, hey, but look, this is a really beautifully constructed novel. It's problematic, mm-hmm. but boy, like it's okay for you to say that there is something, you know, aesthetically valuable here. Um, so, and, and I get the impression in reading this, especially, you know, as I mentioned before to you, like the ways in which you describe sort of the, the incoherentness of, of uh, white supremacy and, and racialization in these novels and in the area, like to me, that seems like as a, a really useful avenue into sort of letting students know that it's okay to be, that these things are complicated. Yeah. Right. Uh, and um, so when you were teaching your 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 race and Victorian literature class, I mean, were you able to and I know you, you discussed sort of the the trials and tribulations there, but were you able to sort of walk that tightrope and sort of bring those things about in conversation? You know, we try. We, I really also tried to foreground writers of color from the 19th century. Um, so we did have Jane Eyre because I was like, all right, well, you know, this is like this. You know, we can we can talk about this and we can and, and then we can kind of push against it with lots of other kinds of texts. And I would say, no, like, I don't think I did a good job in that class. (laughs) I think the students were great. I would love to teach it again. And really, um, you know, again, I think I would do it differently. I think I wasn't quite aware of of how more I could have, how I could have pushed up or how I could have really close read and unpacked those texts more in terms of how they were thinking about how they center whiteness and the, and the instability of racial, um, uh, does it, uh, uh, the ways in which the, the novel sought to racialize characters um, or to disappear a race. Um, so I think that I would want to do it more. I mean, the other tricky thing about that class was, you know, what do you do with writers of color who aren't criticizing empire, you yeah. know, or who don't seem critical? But that I would say the students were really um, uh, incredibly perceptive and insightful in terms of just thinking about audience, thinking about who they were writing, who these writers were writing for, um, and thinking about the incredible, like the subtleties and the kind of crafting that those art, that those uh, writers of color were having to do in order to even get read, in order to, to even um, assert a voice and to kind of, and to try to change um, the discourse somewhat. Um, so I think if I were to teach it again, I would, um, I would try to find even more writers of color. And I think, again, scholars are doing great work kind of um, collecting. And, and so the archive of what we're going to be teaching in 19th century British classes is really changing. Um, so there'll be many more um, texts to choose from. And I think, you know, again, I think that there's much more work to do with how, you know, there's so much, um, as my as my colleague Alicia Kristoff um, has discussed, you know, just the ways in which color works in these novels um, is something to unpack even more how certain, when I think about Jane Eyre and I think about how like her step, her step family is described as dark, you know, what does that mean that they're described as dark um, when they're also clearly British um, and, and thinking about just the kind of the incoherence of racial categorizations in that novel too. Um, anyway, I think there's, there, there was more to do. And so, um, I would do it again. But again, I found it because I was kind of finding myself kind of caught up in terms of empire and having to kind of push those away and keep thinking. Well, yeah, uh, that was one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about that, too, because I think that that that's another thing that I think is so important to understand and sort of get across to people that are maybe outside of our fields or are doing the kind of inquiry that we do is to understand that, like, we 
you know, we are trained in certain ways, right? And it's not necessarily a matter of unlearning, but of learning new ways to sort of recanalize our brains and recanalize our approach to literature or, or to research or all of those things. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult project. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's something that I think, and I, and perhaps your experience is different, but something that I find is really sort of under discussed, um, with, you know, with, you know, either our undergraduate students or with new graduate students that, that recognition that it's okay for you to revise your views and that you necessarily yeah. must revise your views over yeah. time. Yeah. Um, you cannot be sort of, um, you cannot be stationary in these yeah. things. And, and everything's so collaborative. Like you're, you know, your classmate's going to say something that will, you know, hit you weeks later and you might think about something differently. And I think about that with my colleagues and scholars and different conversations, how much it's constantly changing. Um, you know, what I'm seeing and how I'm reading. Um, and I would say, you know, I was just thinking again about how do we um, teach texts that we might enjoy but are horribly racist and what do we, what do, we do with that? Um, one thing I was thinking about is the next time I have the opportunity, I'm going to, um, I'd like to, to think, for example, something like Jane Eyre, which has, has such a kind of uh, force in, in literature written by women, thinking about starting with a very contemporary novel like um, Leilani Raven's um, Luster. And I hope I pronounced her name correctly. It's a recent novel um, that kind of takes a similar format, but in a totally different context. Um, she's a she's a black writer and there's a black main character. Um, and it's an incredible novel. I highly recommend it. Luster. Um, and then going back to, say, Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy, um, another novel written by a Caribbean writer, um, a black Caribbean writer featuring a black Caribbean main character in a kind of um, also in a kind of um, uh, au pair situation. And then backing up to Jane Eyre, to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. So students can kind of see just moving, you know, starting with the present and then moving back in time, just the ways in which those novels are playing with that structure. doesn't mean that those authors loved that novel. However, <laughs> you can see how they're playing with that structure Um reproducing parts of it, but also just completely taking it in new directions. And I think that could also make the reading of Jane Eyre and 19th century literature um, much more alive too, because, you know, as I, you know, I really feel like if our students don't see anything valuable in our, in that literature, it's just going to die, right? It really depends upon each generation seeing something valuable in it. Um, and again, I think when you read contemporary writers, they're reading Victorian novels. Not all of them, but some of them. <laughs> so it's clear to me that some of them are. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think that that's absolutely true, and I, I think that that's that's another tough thing too. Is there's this there there often persists an imagination that whatever generation you are a part of is the generation that discovers all of yeah. these great and amazing or really difficult and complicated problems, right? And the reality is is that you know, people have almost always thought differently about notions of gender and race and wanted to challenge and push back. Yeah. Now, now whose, whose voices have been elevated and whose have been suppressed or, you know, that's a different, that's a separate conversation. Whose freedom is predicated on whose subjugation. Yeah. yeah, precisely. But, but giving them access to those earlier works though is so important to, I feel in helping them sort of identify their own voice and understanding sort of the depth of of the issues at hand and why it is so critical that we are talking about these things now and why it is so critical that we reapproach our fields and why it is so critical that we reapproach our questions, right? And even the way that we ask the questions and, and frame them. Um, and one of the, I didn't realize this is slightly off track, but it's, it's relevant. But one of the, one of the ways that 
uh, I was thinking about this too as you were talking was it reminds me a lot of the way that I talk about, you know, Laura Mulvey with my students when I'm teaching film and visual studies classes, right? I mean, as I read and understand Mulvey, I mean, the male gaze stuff is obviously there. It's really crucial, but like part of like the thrust of her project, which again kind of reminds me of a little bit about of your essay too, is not to destroy the past, right? Not to end it, but to understand it, to find a new and better way forward. Yeah. And, um, and the only way you can do that is by engaging with that very past. Like you can't just say like, okay, it's over now. We're just starting afresh. Like it doesn't, right. life doesn't work that way. Ideas don't work that way. Human beings don't work that way. Um, at least I don't think so. So, yeah. Eh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that was, well, first of all, I, I totally transposed the author of Lester. <laughs> it's not Leilani Raven. It's Raven Leilani. Oh, okay. Um, and I hope I'm not uh, totally mispronouncing her last name, but I was going to say too, um, you know, this is, you know, again, why I think the 19th century matters so much because it is the scene. It's the, it's the century, particularly the mid 19th centuries when you have like the pseudo race science emerging and getting formalized and institutional institutionalized. And it works completely hand in hand with capitalism and, um, industrialization and what happens with the the working poor in England too. But it's, I mean, that's a linked process. What's, what, what's happened? The kind of, uh, racialization of the poor in England and also the racialization of colonized, um, across the empire. I mean, that stuff gets really formalized in the 19th century. And that was something that was, again, a place where, and I taught the Victorian race class. I made an exception to read some of those white authors just so we could just see how just disgusting and distasteful, um, that stuff is. Um, just to have, and just a tiny bit of it before we went and read like, you know, Mrs. Seacole and like these you know, writers of color, Mary Prince, um, who are, you know, really declaring their humanity in the face of these dehumanizing discourses all around them. So the 19th century is so important for both of those, right? The kind of authorship by writers of color that are making their claims to humanity and sort of decrying the way that freedom is used as a justification for oppressing and enslaving others, as well as this kind of pseudoscience of, you know, race science or, you know, it's uh, uh, all of those, of course, claims have been completely debunked um, and they're just, just, you know, absurd things to read. Um, but it is the place where that is happening and where you also have, I mean, you know, the lamination of sex and gender happening at the same time. And you have the invention of homosexuality as a pathology. Um, you have the kind of invention of the normal body and then the pathologization of anything that deviates from that. Right. So thinking about disability, there's a, a lot going on in the 19th century with statistics and, um, and, and, um, and the kind of production of what's considered the normal and the beautiful that really informs the present. Um, and I think students, when they're invited to kind of look at that, can see that, that resonance and they can also see the ways in which it was contested, right? Even as it's gaining strength and getting formalized, there's plenty of resistance to it happening at the same time. Um, and I think that's, a, again, a kind of important thing uh, to keep reminding our students um, and why the 19th century, I think, matters, um, both, you know, the British and in the U.S. side as well. Yeah, well, and that that, that brings me another, to another thing that I wanted to um, talk to you about as it relates specifically to the article. You're writing about sort of the, the racializing of um, of Afghans and uh, the passage I, I highlighted was that the ma- one of the major racial characteristics was that Afghans were temperament, uh, temperamentally ungovernable, right? And that was another sort of moment in reading this that, like, 
helped me sort of put together sort of all of these disparate sort of incohate pieces. Uh, you tell me what it all adds up to because I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure either, but it helped me, it helped me sort of like stitch some of these ideas together and sort of see like the, the, the network in which it, you know, they exist. Because uh, as you were just explaining, I mean, conversations about bodies and capital and, uh, and capitalism and the, the production of these things. And then, uh, you know, and landed themselves. I mean, e- even though there's this discourse about liberality and this discourse about individualism and freedom, I mean, that's clearly, you know, that's clearly sort of a mask for something else, right? To, because what, if you are not governable, then you are not sufficiently white and therefore not sufficiently human. Um, and that, uh, was another sort of element in this article that like, I was like, aha, of course. Right. And then you have this, this really sort of, uh, really terrific passage after that where, where you write, and that pathological hyper individuality then functioned to homogenize the confusing array of cultures to justify subjugating them, to rationalize costly British losses in both wars, to serve as a pretext for fixing Afghans to the land, to render both people and, and a protective bu- buffer for British lives, goods, land, and property in India, and to validate British moderate sensible individualism, right? Like that, like, of yeah. course, right? I mean, this is, this is whiteness, um, 101 to, to feed you one thing. Uh, to give you one discourse while another sort of separate discourse, almost a shadow discourse operates in the background. And that shadow discourse is the one that is the dominating one. Yeah. I mean, and all of these things are happening at once. Right. And, it, and certainly, uh, I, you know, it's, it's part of like, yeah, I mean, it is an incredibly overdetermined process, right? There's a lot of yeah. things happening at once. And I'll say also that, you know, it's, it's a pretty common Orientalist trope, right? To say, oh, these people can't govern themselves, and it's, but it's often a pretext for them invading and taking over the government and conquering. Um, and that doesn't happen. I mean, there's occupations. The, the British occupy Afghanistan twice in the 19th century, but then they always leave. Um, they don't actually want it. I mean, there's some British people who did, imperialists who did want it, but they don't actually want it. They just want to control it. They want to fix the borders. They want it to be a buffer. Um, and they want it to, they want it to be friendly. <laughs> to them, right? And, you know, that kind of, you know, in order to accomplish all of that, though, right, you do have to, these racialization processes have to be in place. Um, and that's what we start to see in, in the literature. I will say someone like Kipling, who is so imperialist, right? I mean, he's such, like, there's no question in his mind that this is exactly what the British should be doing. But even the few times he writes about Afghanistan and, say, the Second Anglo-Afghan War, I'm thinking about um, a poem from Barrack Room Ballads, Fort of, Co- Fort of Cobble River, um, as well as the famous poem, Young British Soldier, right, that circulated a ton after the, after, you know, Operation Enduring Freedom and right after 9-11, has those last lines about the, you know, when you go to die on the plains of Afghanistan, you shoot out your brains before the women cut, you know, whatever. Both of those poems, um, and there's not a lot of poems he writes about Afghanistan, but both of those uh, are so um, melancholy. There's a kind of affect to them that, suggests that there's a kind of meaninglessness to the death of the British soldiers in this war to turn a land into a buffer. Mm-hmm. That it's so removed from, that there's something about that kind of, that, you know, that, 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 that British life, right, would be lost mm-hmm. um, for such a kind of indirect aim. It seems to even depress Kipling, right? I mean, his poems are kind of very, they're kind of, um, there again, the affect is different from his other poems. Um, and I think that's something, you know, that people are still haunted by today. Like, why are we there? You know, after 9-11, like, 
you know, it was the terrorist plague. It was like the training ground of the terrorists, you know, but Osama bin Laden wasn't actually found there. I mean, <laughs> so it's like, why were we there again? And now, you know, the U.S. has been trying to leave forever and they're still trying to figure out how to leave. Um, so I think that those, I mean, it, it's that, you know, what it is that superpowers think they're doing in Afghanistan and why they're doing it, it gets so murky and it gets so, it gets, it, 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 it gets to meaninglessness pretty quickly. Um, and I think that is also what's happening in the 19th century too. And so there's a lot of British resistance to these wars, um, a lot of sense of why are we doing this? Um, but again, it's sort of the super, the, whoever the superpower is in a given, you know, global moment, somehow they're in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. So that's also something I'm trying to figure out. And racialization is certainly part of that, that it's, it's not about conquering. It's about something else. Yeah. There's some sort of biopolitical element there, right? Absolutely. I mean, because these, because if they, if they are indeed understandable from that perspective, understandable as being one with Absolutely. the land or being the land and the land is a buffer, then ergo, yeah. the, the human, these human beings are their yeah. buffers. Uh, and, and that's, that should be, I mean, that is obviously troubling, but should be troubling to anyone that even has to like sort of hear that at the surface level, let alone the, uh, let alone sort of a, a, a deeper one. I mean, there have been other buffer zones. Yeah. You know, just like there have been other, you know, so that's, that's not uncommon. It's not unique to Afghanistan. No, no, no. So, uh, but it's, it's it, it, it certainly been a kind of pattern that that country has had to endure being turned into a buffer zone for other empires. Well, I think, I think that that was, that was what sort of made that thing jump out to me too. I mean, it's not, again, it's like, it's like everything else, you know, as, as you eloquently sort of explained in the article and as we discussed earlier, I mean, you can't map any one of these things onto everything. It's, you know, there's the multiplicity of things all happening and there's all at once-ness about it, you know, which makes it even more confusing. Um, And one of the things I was thinking earlier as we were talking about that is, uh, and we were talking about, uh, we were talking about sort of the, the ideas of these things is it reminds me a lot of, and for, for very obvious reasons, I mean, it reminds me a lot of John Stuart Mill in describing liberalism and all these things and, uh, sort of the ungovernableness mm-hmm. of certain people and, and that there is a, uh, a duty, uh, in the name of freedom and liberality to go in and dominate people. Um, and that that itself is, you know, uh, an accepted part of the discourse, uh, only sort of adds to this, you know, troubling stew of things that, that are happening all at once, right? In roughly, in all in the same period. Yeah. These, are the same, these are the same people reading the same books, the same ideas, you know. Um, so if we're thinking about, um, if we're thinking about these things sort of moving forward, and, and let's just say hypothetically, I'm in, your next iteration of race in Victorian studies class or race in Victorian literature class, right? Like I can't now, but it yeah. would be a delight, right? To be back in class together again. It would have been awesome to have you. I would have loved to have been there. Um, so where do we, how can we use a project like this? How can we take an article like, like this one and use it as sort of a, a, a launching point for, for mm-hmm. sort of that recanalizing that we were talking about earlier, right? Like how does this help us sort of reapproach? And I feel like we've, we've been, talking around that uh, throughout sort of the entirety of our conversation, but how can we take, how can we take these ideas and sort of put them into practice or how might you imagine putting them into practice in the next iteration of the class? You know, I think I would definitely be inspired by the people who um, I get to share the pages of that special issue with. Mm -hmm. We have people um, 
you know, who are working on, you know, again, looking at Victorian literature, but unpacking the ways in which it's centering whiteness. And it might be about the way Chineseness is constructed and what that enables, whether, you know, it enables a certain kind of material wealth or it enables a kind of uh, cultural distinction, but it also, um, you know, at, at, while racializing a whole other part of the world. I mean, that, so that part I think is, is critical. Um, you know, someone like Ryan Fong's piece is thinking about indigenous knowledges, um, as a kind of alternative framework for interpreting Victorian novels that are about indigenous people or by indigenous people. Um, and I think, you know, so I, I think that I would have a much more, I would really, again, I would probably take Lisa Lowe's work as a kind of template for thinking about these, you know, the four continents and transatlantic, this transatlantic slave trade, thinking about industrial capitalism, thinking about indentured servitude. So really thinking about those um, networks of material wealth and then thinking about literary representation as complicit with it, but also resisting it. And I think that's the key thing too. I mean, you can find lots of racist stuff going on in those texts, but, but setting them, you know, reading those so that you can kind of understand how they're operating and what it enables in terms of a sense of British supremacy, um, superiority, uh, con- the construction of whiteness as incoherent and weird as it is, because there's an English sense of whiteness against Irishness, against the Romani. I mean, it's, again, it's always, it's always, um, in a much larger network that is overdetermined and, and constantly on the move. Um, and that's the kind of stuff you can kind of see in these novels. But I also want to make sure that I'm giving equal, if not more space to the writers of color who are, you know, critiquing that, who are writing against it, who are pointing it out. So just to kind of show that, yes, the 19th century was super racist. Here's all these people who are contesting that, which is also to say that it's not like our own moment is also not super racist with all of these other writers also contesting that. I mean, that's, I think, that's part of the danger in the class is like when you read 19th century race science or some of this stuff, you think, oh, at least we've made so much progress. But the point, of course, is that, you know, anti-blackness and imperialist sensibility and white supremacy, they, you know, they, they, they continue into the present in ways that this work helps us to see and expose. So I think I might even set some more contemporary texts in that class, too, to guard against the sense that, oh, the 19th century was so racist, racist and now we're not. Um, but to, uh, to, to sort of show those connections more. Yeah, that, that sense of um, the malleability of, of white supremacy, yeah. right? Like that it, that it itself doesn't understand that if white supremacy has sort of a consciousness, let's just hypothetically, right? Like it doesn't understand itself as in a fixed body and as a fixed shape and a fixed form, right? It is constantly finding new ways to adapt to perpetuate itself in new and complicated ways right and i think that that i think that that's a really smart way to go about it too by introducing you know contemporary texts and i think one thing that i think many of us you know make are making a concerted effort to do is to be much more intentional about the text that we choose for um you know for the, the moment in which we are teaching but also making sure that we're sort of giving students access to not just intentionality within that moment, but showing by demonstrating for them, like if we can be intentional in this moment and choosing writers of color or choosing to uh, problemize these or problematize these certain kinds of texts that gives us access to our contemporary moment. And I think, I think that that's really smart of you to do that because I think that's one of the, you know, among the many things that I think are incredibly difficult to translate in terms of what we do. I mean, I think that that's one of the toughest, like how do I take this, incredibly valuable information, this fascinating stuff that I've learned about, you know, 
200 years ago and make this relevant for me today. I mean, I, I think a lot, I think a lot of our students, you know, struggle to take things from 50 years ago and, and, and do that, which is not, you know, that I think that's the problem of every, every generation. Oh, sure. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, developing an historicist sensibility is not, not easy. Um, but, and, and, and perhaps in this country, we, we don't do a great job of that at the secondary level either. Um, but I think getting a sense of just how it has changed and how it has, uh, you know, and how it's persisted uh, is really important. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and to that end, I guess uh, one of the things I wanted to bring us back around to was uh, talking through how this particular project came about and where it, and where it fits within your sort of larger body of, of work and, and where we're going to be going with this. Um, because I think that, I think that thinking long-term about these projects, right? Not just as sort of uh, as the article being sort of the final version of this, but this is a part of a, this is a moment to build. This is a moment to reflect. This is a moment to sort of grow in, in, transform ourselves as, as scholars and as thinkers. So, so where does an article like this sort of fit in that sort of trajectory for you right now as you're thinking about your next project and working towards it? Right. Well, so this, it comes out of the book project that I've been working on um, for too long. <laughs> the second book, it's a bitch. Um, the second book is, it's, uh, it, it's been difficult to get off the ground, but I have um, one piece of it published and uh, uh, sort of like probably the later part of it. But it, it, so I am working on a book project that examines Victorian representations of Afghanistan, right? 19th century British representations. Um, and like I said, the thing that I'm seeing is that there's this kind of obsession on the British part with what they perceive to be the impossibility of Afghan sovereignty. Um, and they attribute that to the kind of Afghans being fundamentally ungovernable. And so that is a, that is a racializing move. It's not unique to Afghanistan. It happens to other places, but what they do with that is unique. And again, I just want to, again, as you, as you said before, the kind of the way that empire and racialization work together, they're inseparable. Um, and you can't have empire without this modern notion of race. And again, I'm so taken with Sylvia Winters thinking about race as the kind of, metaphysical ground for who we are. And she puts, we, you know, it's, it's all in quotes, um, you know, as a kind of in a secular world, race becomes, you know, and race, that becomes the, the, the kind of essence of who we are. Right. And, and then, and then it can be biology, biological, it can be cultural. It can, you know, there's all kinds of ways of thinking about it, but as a term and as a concept, it persists, right. As something that, that gives information, but it's completely made up. <laughs> It's completely made up. Um, so I'm trying to, so I do want to track how race works in those um, texts as well, because it does change quite a bit throughout the century. And, you know, we have to historicize it and comparing, you know, how the British represented Indians, say, versus how they represented Afghans. In the 1815 um, travel narrative I'm looking at by Sir Mount Stuart Elphinstone, you know, they've already obviously colonized India. He's traveling to Kabul to meet with um, the emir. Um, and he's delighted by the Afghans he meets. And he sort of thinks of them as, you know, they're savage and you can't trust them, but they have a kind of, you know, independence that he admires and compares them to Indians who are like, you know, um, more submissive, um, but also more educatable. Like they can be modernized, right? So these are all racial stereotypes that justify on the one hand, in the case of Afghanistan, using force but not colonizing it. In the case of India, colonizing 
um, because, you know, the Indians want them there and they can actually be, you know, educated to a certain kind of modernity and Afghanistan will never reach modernity. So, you know, here race comes in to justify different things. And that's something that I'm tracking across these texts as yeah. well. And it also sort of speaks to this issue of, of race not being constrained to notions of physiognomy. Right. It's, oh, gosh, no. I mean, you and I obviously understand that, but, but it, it's, uh, but I, I mentioned that because it also sort of also speaks to the sort of the incoherentness of this, right? Where they, they, it's, it's about physiognomy when it's convenient for it to be so. Mm-hmm. And it's about, uh, it's about identity or, you know, a cultural identity when it's convenient for it yes. to be so. Um, right. it's about, freedom when it is convenient for it to be so, right? No, right. There's, you have to look, you have to see like what, you know, where's the money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but in an earlier, so I'm also looking at the 1792 trial narrative by George Forster, who travels by us himself primarily from, I think, Calcutta, right at the time, Madras to England. And he goes through Northern India into Afghanistan, crosses, you know, into Persia, crosses the Caspian Sea, into Russia, and but he travels mostly through India and Afghanistan as a Turk uh, because he's fair-skinned, right? And nobody questions him, right? So somehow, you know, there's this, this colorism that's in place um, that, you know, again, it, sometimes the color of a skin indicates something about that person, and sometimes it doesn't, right? Or that it can be masqueraded, that it can, you can pass, and then there's no problem with it. But even that starts to shift by the end, by the mid 19th century. So just tracking just how, what, you know, what was considered common sense about physiognomy, about skin color, um, that is constantly shifting. Yeah. And again, sort of speaks to exactly that thing you were talking about, sort of the complexity and the, and the, and the importance of taking the time to understand this past and the ways in which uh, this past sort of persists into our current conversations now. And as we're wrapping up, um, I wanted to draw attention to this, um, a couple of things that you write here towards the, towards the end of the article, because uh, I think they're really valuable and they speak to exactly what we were just talking about. Where you write, modern racism appropriates older versions of representations of cultural difference, but divides the population into those whose health uh, the state is invested in maintaining and improving in those who are seen as a threat to that health and must be killed, managed, exploited, or attenuated in the service of the desirable populations thriving. And I think that that is another sort of key passage in the, in, in the piece and helping us understand sort of the multiplicity of ways in which sort of racism works its way into and white supremacy works its way into a variety of discourses and, and helps perpetuate that sort of incoherence of it right because it it picks and chooses what is most convenient like as you said you know which is the most profitable in this moment and then we choose that discourse um and then situating the 19th century within a longer history of older processes in which we remained ensnared you know that that is again so important to understanding sort of the value and and the the um of of work like this and how we can take something like like what you're working on here and use it as a, a, a valuable sort of launching point for new and different ideas and, and, and uh, complicating our approach to these books. Yeah. As I've been thinking about it a lot, I think there's that we're in this really exciting mode of experimentation where a lot of Victorian studies scholars and scholars in 18th century and medieval and, and early modern, um, they're really starting to put pressure on the idea of race and anti-blackness. And it's a kind of, again, it's this mode of experimentation, which I think is going to really, 
lead to some like really important um, rethinking in the field. And so I think the other thing I just wanted to add was that I, I think it's this, my work on Victorian Afghanistan has really kind of um, pushed me to think more about, um, about race and to think about the limits of post-colonial studies. Um, and to just, you know, again, think about the, the history of my field, mm-hmm. um, which was transformed by post-colonial studies in the 1980s. It was transformed by feminist theory in the 80s, queer theory in the 90s. And now I think we're seeing another kind of transformation with critical race theory and ethnic studies, both putting pressure on the kinds of questions we ask and how we do the research, but also, um, like with feminist theory, post-colonial theory and queer theory, um, reminding us of just how much important stuff is going on in the 19th century that sheds light on the present, on the present questions around race and ethnicity. So I think it's really an exciting time to see younger scholars and like more established scholars, like really starting to put pressure on um, how they conduct their research. And I think some of the ways that we've been inspired is to even ask questions about like, you know, what would our field look like if we started with the question of anti-blackness mm-hmm. um, or if we started with the question of race, as opposed to it being this thing that we kind of add on later Um uh, and also questions about, you know, like starting to think much more intentionally about our own social historical position in relation to our objects of study and how that shapes our the kinds of questions and access to the object and um, all that stuff, too, which I think ethnic studies in particular really does sort of bring to the surface. Like, OK, who you are and where you are and what institution you're in really does um, have an impact on what you're studying um, and how you present it and, and what you learn about it and knowledge in general. So I think anything that I'm doing in that article is stuff, you know, I'm inspired by other people. And I think that it is this kind of this moment where Victorian studies is, is, is getting impacted by the kinds of questions um, being asked in critical race theory and ethnic studies. Um, and I think the other exciting thing, and it's something that I'm inspired to keep working on, is to think, again, much more intentionally about the connection between the British Empire, um, colonialism, capitalism, and also slavery. Um, and that's something that I think scholars have started, have been doing, but we haven't always been really explicit about, you know, say what's going on in India, how it is connected with the transatlantic slave trade, Um it's not the same at all, but it's completely connected in the kind of larger, the new kind of the new um, international order that is starting to emerge in the 18th and 19th century uh, has everything to do with the opening up of markets in Asia and also the transatlantic slave trade. And, you know, for me as a Victorianist, you know, studying the British Empire in, 19th, in the 19th century is um, such an opportunity to think about how that stuff gets justified what the material consequences of it are. Um, and we don't often study, say, British imperialism or colonization in Asia alongside the, the transatlantic slave trade or think about anti-blackness in relation to um, uh, the colonization of Native peoples. So I think there's – so that, I think, is um, something, again, that I'm really excited to keep thinking about. Um, and, and, and I do think that Victorian studies is uniquely positioned to um, – shed some light on and to illuminate some of those questions. So um, I think that was pretty much all I wanted to say. And I think in relation to Afghanistan, I think I got, that's something I did want to return to because I think, as I think about my work in Afghanistan in the 19th century, 
you know, what I see, you know, it's definitely the British are interested in Afghanistan because of India, um, because they want to protect India from Russia and, and primarily before that it was from France. So this kind of sense of other empires wanting to, um, uh, you know, broach the, the jewel of the, in the crown. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, what I've become interested in is thinking about a broader racial logic that does, um, that is, how the British justify something like subjugation um, and its connection with other racial logics in terms of how they, how they dehumanize people and turn them into objects that can be sold. And these are very different processes. Um, and I think, you know, I want to develop um, my, like very nuanced ways of talking about, about that. But so, but I am interested in that racial logic that is certainly in play. Yeah. When I was, I was, um, I was reading through the article again and, one of the things that jumped out to me uh, this time around was, especially with you talking about capitalism, was uh, – I'm just going to pull the passage right here. Uh, if engaging in commercial transactions leads to civility, sympathy, and national bonds, as Adam Smith argues in the uh, theory of moral sentiments, then Afghans' disdain for trade further removes them from the possibility of – uh, of civilizing themselves and developing their faculties for national sympathy. I mean, that's a, that's a, a really sort of powerful notion right there because it ties the very, the very idea of whiteness and white supremacy to participation in, in capitalism, right? Like, I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. And, and that in and of itself is as a part of like these like yeah. grander sort of networks of ideas that sort of inform all of these things. Yeah. That right there is an yeah. important sort of through line, like just yeah. say it outright, like, yeah. Here's a, here's a question we can start with, right? Like, yeah, no, I think that is that is a you know as you pull it out, I think of, you know I think about that anew. I'm like, oh, I wrote that. Yeah, no, and, and so it's great to hear you like pull it out and um, and see it in that way because it does um, by doing that. Um, I think we can also um, sort of see anew just you know how important this kind of historicist work is for denaturalizing something like capitalism. Like it, it's not natural, it's not inevitable, it didn't always exist. And, and it's certainly complicit with imperialism and enslavement, genocide, territorial expansion, all of those things. Um, and so, and yeah, and you can see just how tied it is to a notion of liberalism too, that to be, you know, that the idea of liberty is deeply connected to capitalism and free trade and who's allowed to participate in that system, who's turned into an object, who's excluded, um, so, yeah, so I think, again, this is, again, why I feel like our period has so much to offer those discussions, because it's really across the 18th and 19th centuries that these um, forms coalesce, and they, they take, they start to become normative, but they're not normative at the time, yeah. and that's what makes these moments interesting, too. Well, it, and just to build on, there's another moment in this, and I don't have, I hope you'll forgive me, because I don't have the quote yeah. pulled up. Uh, no, I do, actually, it's right here. Aha! Uh when you re when you relate to the, this to the winter article, right, where uh, sovereignty is not just uh, separating the church from the from the king's body, but also to the citizen's body, a process that winter reminds us is founded upon representing uh, African, indigenous, and Asian pe peoples on a spectrum of the subhuman, right? I mean, there again too, I mean that notion of yeah. capitalism and being yeah. uh, in a mercantile system where you are dominating your your laborers, right? I mean that's yeah. that's the yeah. very same sort of like matrix yeah. of repression and white supremacy and gives yeah. sort of license to whiteness, right? Like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Totally. Uh, and that's, it's not that, that's not the narrative we tell, right? We tell this great narrative of how, 
Europeans and particularly the British like freed themselves from absolutist government in order to you know become entrepreneurs and to own the fruits of their labor and you know and it's about individualism and autonomy and like progress and liberty and democracy and it's like but, but all of that is deeply bound up in also excluding people from that process um it's deeply tied up into to anti-blackness and excluding colonized subjects from that who at the same time were being cast as, you know, because they're not civilized enough, you can still, you can deny them democracy and liberty. Um, you know, so that all of that goes together. And so it really kind of puts pressure on some of the projects that, you know, the, the democracy project and the and liberalism project that, yeah. that we're um yeah, I, I, I hope we're not going down, down too much of a rabbit hole. But as you're talking about this, like this is just giving more, me more ideas because the other thing you're, that we're sort of talking around too is is Locke, right? And uh, when Locke talks about that sort of weird transubstantiation that happens, where by by way of labor you create property and you own something because you labor over it, right? Right, right. Well, if you can sort of twist that or if you can sort of fit that into a narrative like yeah. well i'm the i'm the factory owner i am yeah. the imperialist and i've labored over this land to civilize yeah. it to tame it i own it now and, yeah. and if i created this yeah. job i own yeah. Right? Yeah. i mean those yeah. are all those are all yeah. deeply racialized ideas absolutely uh, that come from yeah, absolutely yeah so Locke is central to this and then later in my period john stewart mill i mean yeah. earlier again adam smith in between yeah. Locke and um, and no, and, 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 uh, and, and in the ways in which these thinkers have been so enshrined, mm-hmm. uh, and, and studied and, you know, like, well, we also need to ask these questions too. Like how much, you know, at the same time you're having colonization, you're having violence, you're having genocide, you're having territorial you know, expansion, you're having enslavement. Um, those are all connected and, and the necessary conditions for those, um, philosophies to emerge. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think that this is just the the most exciting thing about this to me is just I mean, is just the the honesty and the integrity that it takes to just step back and say, like, well, what if we just ask these questions from an entirely different yeah. different perspective? Yeah. What if we started right. from a different sort of yeah. hypothetical baseline, yes. right? Like, what yeah. if we started with the notion of anti-blackness instead right. of yeah. the assumption that liberalism yeah. is you know this liberating force for lack of a better word right, right? like yeah, yeah. or just to, yeah to put pressure on what we mean when we say liberty uh liberty for all like what is liberty who is the all here um who's being excluded i mean yeah and, and i think you know my field has produced you know amazing amazing work and there's incredible research um but it could it could stand to could put a little pressure i think on some of its ideas and some of its what it may take to be, what it, it's axioms and, um, uh, and it's an incredibly generous field. So I think it's actually quite open to that. Yeah. Well, and it's how we grow, right? Like, I mean, nothing, nothing changes if you just sort of let it be right. Things don't get better. And I I think I have to really credit students too, for, for kind of making us do this Um, because this, you know, people, why study Victorian literature if it doesn't speak to your life or the conditions of your life? Like, it really depends on students, I think, to read it and to make it still relevant and matter. So I do think students have also pushed us to ask these questions of, of the literature so that, you know, we can we can speak about the things that really impact their daily lives. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I think that that's one of the most important things that we have to do is to let yeah. them know that 
not just not just say the words this matters, but yeah. give them the tools to put it into practical action. Yeah. Say, yeah. You know. And 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 to model for them, like to think about their own position and you know, what are the historical forces that that are, you know, that that have produced the position from which they are now looking at their, yeah. these texts and having these discussions. Um that's a that's hard work to do in a classroom, but it's I think something we can also kind of build into our research too. Yeah. So well, and, and I guess the last thing I want to add to that too is, is to say that, and also to model for them that ideas change and change over time and we have yeah. to revise and reflect and that the process of revising and reflection that we ask them in the classroom, whether it's about their writing or just asking them to come to new ideas afresh. I mean, that's something yeah. that we have to practice every yeah. day as, as scholars. I mean, we can't, yes. we can't stagnate. We must be willing to revise and um, yeah. treat uh, treat even our own ideas as provisional in some ways and say, yeah. you know, I could have made a mistake here. I could have yeah. come at this from yeah. uh, from a perspective that I didn't under yeah. fully understand. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that's so important for them to see, too, just to see, yeah. like, it's, it's okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. The more that we can kind of reveal the conditions under which we're producing knowledge and that those conditions can change and that our questions can shift, um, the better. And I think that just uh, is part of what we want to be teaching them. Yep. To always be doing. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree with you more. I, 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 yeah, I feel like that's. And I know that's the kind of teacher you are, Zach. Yeah, I try to be, right? I, I imagine myself in that mode. Uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but I'm really grateful for, for the time that you spent with us. And, um, this is, again, this is just such an enlightening and, and delightful piece to, to read. Well, thank you, Zach. I want to thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor to be part of your series. Um, and I would just say, you know, I, you know, Afghanistan, I've, I've published this line before, but I'll say it again. You know, Afghanistan seems to be the nightmare of liberalism, you know, whether it's a Victorian liberalism or, you know, Anglo-American neoliberalism. Um, and I think that's uh, just something I want, I would just like to draw people's attention to is when Afghanistan becomes in, in, in the news, we know a crisis is going on with that particular ideology. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Prerequisites. This episode of the program is supported by the Russell B. Nye Fellowship for Interdisciplinary Curricular Enhancement in English from the Michigan State University Department of English. You can find out more about MSU English, including graduate and undergraduate programs at english.msu.edu. This episode of Prerequisites was written, produced, and engineered by Zach Cruzy. Until next time, this is Dr. Zach Cruzy. Good day. In the end, it remains a simple thing. But for each moment, there is a flavor.